Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Root and Roots show on blogtalkradio.com. Now here's your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you the best in music, information, and history. Well, good evening, everyone. If you're joining me live on this lovely Friday evening, this is Greg Rashid, the host of the Root and Roots show. Heard Fridays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Saturdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time live, but you can always listen anytime you want on blogtalkradio.com, on iTunes, also on KUHS Denver Radio and Television, founded by Henry Archuleta, and it comes on Saturdays and Wednesdays there. So I hope you enjoy this show this evening because this is going to be a dynamite show. I think all the shows are dynamite. This will be very dynamite as we talk about Drugs as Weapons Against Us. We're going to have John L. Podash on here, but we're going to start the music off here. This is uh, very appropriate for the for the show because we're going to be talking about Tupac in this interview, but we're going to play right now Tupac Shakur and Me Against the World on the Root and Root Show. This is Me Against the World. Yeah. 
address Always do your best Don't let the pressure make you panic And when you get stranded And things don't go the way you planned it Dreaming the riches In a position to making a difference Politicians and hypocrites They don't want to listen If I'm insane It's the fame made a proper change It wasn't nothing like the game It's just me against the world Drug dealers that I was counseling, 
And um, so there was a lot of interesting stories, but one of the stories of someone I was counseling said, you know, was that my father was a Black Panther killed by the police, he said. And so I was finding out more and more about uh, drugs and the fact that people were saying that the government was trafficking them. And um, so I started writing about it first as a novel, and then uh, when I was researching the Black Panthers and found out that the New York's in New York's top Black Panthers were the Shakurs, and I heard that there was some uh, police foul play around Tupac Shakur's trial in 1994. I called his uh, trial lawyer in New York and said, do you think that the uh, government's targeting Tupac the way they target his parents? And he said, yes, and no one's writing about it. So I got an hour or two interview with him and then uh, ended up interviewing a number of other people uh, that was close to Tupac's situation and uh, knew Tupac well, and I ended up turning into an article first for a local magazine and then for a national magazine. And after I published it in the national magazine, the uh, you know his, his uh, business manager and longtime political mentor Watani Tayahimba uh, said, "You got you got to turn this into a book because if you don't write it, no one else seem, you know will." And so I uh, finally put it out in 2007, and. Um, so I interviewed his you know, national lawyer, Choko Lumumba, and many others, and found, of course, that uh, he was actually an activist only pretending to be a gangster in order to appeal to gangs and politicize them in line with his Black Panther family's uh, plan, you know, their movement to uh, get the Bloods and Crips to call peace truces around the country and politicize and them. And that's a key and point. And, and that's a very key point. And the thing is, too, I, you know, mm-hmm. after reading your first book and definitely reading the second book, I got a new appreciation about Tupac, as well as some other folks you mentioned in the book. But continue what you're saying about Tupac. Sure. Well, so he was an activist before he was a, you know, a rapper. He was a head of a group called the New African Panthers, active in eight cities, and so he only uh, took up, you know, left that leadership position and took up rap, uh, partly because you know he loved rap and music, but uh, partly because he thought he could it was a might be a better way to get out his, his political messages and, uh, you know, do more activism. And so um, that's, you know, that he was attacked from day one, though. Uh, when he first put out his uh, first uh, musical, I guess it was MTV Worldwide release of the song Trapped, uh, you know, Oakland police stopped him supposedly for jaywalking. They banged his head against the curb and choked him unconscious. And then he was at the Marin Fest, and he was attacked there by strangers. They shot at him, and the police only arrested him, didn't arrest the people that shot at him. And uh, then there was the incident in Atlanta where alleged off-duty cops uh, you know, uh, ran up to his car, smashed his window, according to eyewitnesses, and shot at him. And he merely rolled out the back, grabbed a guard's gun, and shot back in self-defense. And, uh, and of course, the uh, incident where there was a sexual assault the alleged sexual assault uh, was set up by a guy who his trial lawyer said he got his rap sheet and it was clear that he was an undercover police intelligence agent because he had a long line of uh, arrests up and down the East Coast, all dismissed for major charges. And so Tupac's New York trial lawyer was Michael Warren, who was a uh, European spokesperson for the, Mumia Mul- for the Free Mumia campaign. And he was a longtime activist who knew this stuff and, uh, you know, so knew that this guy, Jacques Agnon, who Tupac rapped as, you know, Haitian Jack, knew he was working for the feds, meaning the Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, based on his, you know, Michael Warren getting his rap sheet. So um, it was clearly a setup, the sexual assault scene, 
And then that same guy, also his associate, is the one that called Tupac to the New York recording studio lobby, where two you know gunmen uh, put bullets in him, got him on the the uh, ground, and then put two bullets in his skull, according to a doctor's affidavit. So that was clearly a murder attempt. And then when the security guard took the surveillance video and offered it to the police, the police turned it down, and closed the case. So that's how that was handled. So you know, and it's funny though that um. If I can just say a little bit yeah, here. Yeah, sure, uh, sure. I know some folks out there listening at 424-675-8315. I'm talking to John Podash. And some folks are saying, well, you know, who don't really know about the history, that, you know, they'll say, mm-hmm. well, you know, wasn't it just all gang-related stuff and really wasn't, you know, yeah. government informants or anything like that. But what your book shows and what you're talking about is the fact mm-hmm. that the government – and I want you to talk about the MK, we're going to go everywhere on this show, but the yes. MK Ultra program, because people mm-hmm. have to understand that what John's book talks about, and he footnotes everything, he has references. Mm-hmm. This is not something he's just like, he's heard rumors about, and he's writing a book, and that's it. And there's no backup. He backs up everything, court statements, testimonies government files, you name it. He has it all in there. So talk to my listeners who aren't familiar from, from with the whole background of MK Ultra. Also, I want you to talk about the whole eugenics movement because all of this, sure. as you have it in the book, ties into everything that leads up to not only Tupac being assassinated but other folks. Yeah, well, well, the eugenics movement is the first chapter of my book because these oligarchs, the wealthiest families, uh, started this eugenics movement in the early 1900s, and it was the most uh, racist, genocidal movement this country's ever seen, uh, you know, after slavery, I guess, of course. But, um, you know, this was saying that all these different ethnic groups, and particularly, of course, people of color, they, they were saying they're genetically inferior and need to be exterminated. That's literally the words from their documents. It's incredible what they they, what they were coming out with, and they and they based this on these ridiculous uh, alpha and beta tests, the you know, precursors of the IQ tests, where they they had these questions on these tests talking about tennis you know courts and bowling alleys that most people didn't know about except for the super rich at that time in the early 1900s, and. Um, so they would ask these ridiculous questions, and if people got them wrong, they'd act like, oh, well, they're, they're you know, uh, mentally inferior and uh, need to be disposed of. And so they were actually sterilizing tons of people of color and and people, you know, uh, Jews and Southern Italians and Irish and all kinds of people. Even poor white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were being sterilized as you know, saying they were genetically inferior and it was it was you know it was the build up to what what became the Nazi movement in Germany because the same people that funded the eugenics movement in America funded the Nazis in Germany but what they did is and they, that's they, an important that's a key point there that is very important yeah, they Folks, paid off you're not going to learn this in history books yeah they paid off and and this comes from Edwin Black who was a Los Angeles Times syndicated columnist whose work has been translated in hundreds of different languages. Um, he had he'd written IBM and the Holocaust, which was most famous of his books, but this book that talks about eugenics is called War Against the Weak, and it's been uh, peer-reviewed uh, by all the scholars of this movement. And so he uh, he details the fact that, yeah, this is how, what, how where they did things. So these are the pe- same people that started the CIA with the National Security Act of 1947. And, and John, mention some of the names of the families. Talk about the family sure. names that people... Yeah, say, say some of these corporate yeah. names that 
They should yeah, know the Rockefellers, the Carnegies, and the, uh, the uh, J.P. Morgan family and the Rockefellers were really the top families that bought out the media in the 1900, early 1900s and uh, were the, the biggest money behind uh, you know, like the CIA and all. But there, it was also the Harrimans, the Carnegies, uh, the Bushes were uh, working for them. Uh, the Dulles brothers, who were the head, you know, first head of the CIA, were the lawyers for the Rockefellers and J.P. Morgan interests. So these were some of the families that were involved in all this. And um, so, you know, with the start of this, uh, 19, the CIA in '47, it made the director of the CIA the supervisor of all the other 14-plus intelligence agency directors, and it made them the you know, titular head of, of intelligence. And uh, and that gave them incredible power to act outside the law, and that's what they proceeded to do. Now, after the World War II, um, you know, eugenics got a bad name, so they put it in the closet. But they didn't they didn't uh, you know squash it completely. It was still happening. It was just happening in, in secret more. There were still meetings going on with eugenics. Um, so what so what they did after World War II is they brought in loads of those Nazi scientists that were experimenting with psychedelics on concentration camp victims. And, you know, under Operation Paperclip, they brought hundreds of Nazi scientists in the United States, and a number of them were working in, in uh, what became Operation MKUltra in 1953, which is a huge uh, umbrella operation for a number of other sub-operations. But they also sent, uh, saved thousands of Nazis and sent them throughout the world, but particularly down in Latin America where they set up the uh, cocaine trafficking routes and started to depose uh, any kind of uh, popularly democratically elected leader to try to institute dictatorships, fascist dictatorships in Latin American countries. So in the United States here, they started this MKUltra, and MKUltra was, according to its documents, which I show in my book, are the use of drugs as unconventional warfare. And I show the evidence how that unconventional warfare was not just on the battlefield, but it was using uh, all of society as one big battlefield. You know, dissent in American cities was a battlefield. And that's the way they use drugs, and that's they used it against all opponents of their hyper-capitalist agenda and their bigoted agenda. And their bigoted agenda and, was and to oppose. Mm-hmm. Go on. And as you mentioned in the book, you know the folks that they were experimenting mm-hmm. this on were a lot of them were soldiers. I mean, just innocent folks who oh, yeah. didn't know what they were getting. And just talk yeah. about a couple of those experiments of what happened when they were giving these folks LSD, and what was the prime reason for giving folks LSD in particular, and also talk about Timothy Leary and his big role in all of this. Sure. Yeah, so they they had a number of different experimental <laughs> subjects, but they, they tested uh, about two dozen different drugs, and I've got the table of list of drugs they tested on Edgewood Arsenal soldiers. They used a 1,000 Edgewood Arsenal soldiers as guinea pigs, and they just uh, said, we'll give you money to be a volunteer, and it's just like drinking, you know, having a drink of alcohol, but it's just a little different. So then they give them acid, you know, LSD, or, or you know, or psychedelic mushrooms, or, um, or, a super, or, you know, a different drug like Valium or a number of drugs, but LSD was the one most used. And, you know, a number of these soldiers thought that their lives were, were messed up by these drugs. Um, you know, some soldiers tried to take it to court, to the Supreme Court, to sue for the damage that, that was done to their lives. Um, and 19 years later, um, they were all surveyed, and 25% of them said that they still experienced long-term adverse effects from the LSD uh, from 19 years before. So that's how you know dangerous this stuff was. 
And, um, you know, these people did not know what they were taking, not know what was going on. Now, later, it's, they started to spread it, and they started to have volunteers from all society. They gave uh, they had a CIA-front company called the Human Ecology Fund, which was out of Cornell Medical School, and they gave grants to professors at over 100 different colleges, and they would pay uh, different you know, subjects the equivalent of what would be like $120 today to uh, try acid or try mush- psychedelic mushrooms and things like that. And Timothy Leary was getting uh, that grant at Harvard and doing that when subjects at Harvard for you know poor students that needed money, and you know would would take that take up the offer, and so that's what they were doing there. And Timothy Leary ended up admitting later admitting that he knew he was working for the CIA when he was testing loads of of acid with college students, but then he um, got kicked out of Harvard, and uh, a family called the Mel- named the Mellon Hitchcocks who were famous for owning uh, Mellon Bank and Gulf Oil, um, and were heavily involved in U.S. intelligence. They, Peggy and Billy Mellon Hitchcock, um, helped fund Timothy Leary's uh, like International Association for Psychedelics and uh, gave uh, their, their state in New York um, to Timothy Leary. And so Timothy Leary held constant parties there just north of New York, about an hour and a half north of New York City, where he would get these, you know, uh, young people to come up and and just use them as guinea pigs. They'd be MK Ultra scientists just hanging out there all the time, testing different psychedelics on the people they got to come up to Timothy Leary's uh, mansion. And so Timothy Leary and, and, you know, and, and John, I have to say this mm-hmm. too that I remember when sure. I was growing up in the '60s, you know, being a teenager in particular, and when I would see Timothy Leary on television back then, mm-hmm. he was always portrayed as this, you know, just real this. In this harmless cuckoo who happened to drop acid, that he really, right. you know, the, he was so innocent. He was just like, well, you know, tune in, drop out, turn out, whatever the turn slogan on. was, and turn on, tune in, drop out, right? That's it. And but the thing was, you know, what I found in your book and some other books too is that he was a serious operative for the government, as you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the the idea was to you know, so many young people were getting into civil rights activism and getting into anti war activism, and and the purpose his purpose and many other of these acid guru types, their their purpose was to, to shine a huge media spotlight on, on them and to divert people from their best activism and to divert people into like more of the hippie movement and out of the uh, activist serious activist movement you know clear minded community organizing that they were doing. And so it hurt their minds, the acid, but it also just it just messed up their lives as they dropped out of society, and uh, they weren't able to do the best activism by by getting involved in the drugs so heavily. And I show you know, at least four studies that show there's some kind of mental damage going on when you when you do all this acid, and uh, it's just a yeah. shame. It's just a shame, yeah, you know, but um, you know they use other drugs too. You know these all different kinds of drugs, but acid was the one they used the most. Yeah. Now talk about the promotion of drugs among musicians and how they did this. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned the names. We talked about Tupac, and we'll get back to Tupac again. But yeah, sure. So let's start out with, uh, let's get with Elvis first. Elvis, the Beatles, yeah. and, and the Rolling Stones. Yeah. yeah, people don't usually see Elvis as any kind of activist, of course, but because they got to him very young because he was the first world, you know, nationwide rock star yeah, uh, and you know, uh, granted, you know, he he paid tribute to the greats, BB King and Bo Diddley, and all all those greats. He says they were the kings of rock and roll, and he wasn't really the king of rock and roll. 
and uh, and that's why they had a problem with Elvis. Elvis was an integrationist before anyone else was into integration. He was going to to black rock shows all the time, you know, black you know, rhythm and blues shows all the time, and he that's what he preached at 21 years old. So when he was still about 21 or 22 years old, into in his you know with all this fame and not knowing how to handle it, into his life comes this guy named Colonel Tom Parker and inserts himself as as manager to handle all the uh, bookings. And Colonel Tom Parker was the highest level civilian, uh, or actually the highest level National Reserve soldier in the country. And he proceeded to control Elvis. He gave him uppers and downers, you know, speed and barbiturates and, uh, you know, hurt his mind with them, hurt his, his life with them, and then got him into the Army, got him you know, drafted. Uh, you know, the government got him drafted, but Colonel Tom Parker influenced him also in 1958. And in 1958, um, he was sent to Germany. And in Germany, they were running loads of MKUltra operations. And um, a few other people who were later called the Memphis Mafia became close with Elvis and kept encouraging his drug use. And then Colonel Tom Parker proceeded to control his life thereafter and not let, didn't let him do a live concert for the next 10 years. And uh, John, you know, when Elvis died of drugs in the 70s, 1970s, um, people hounded John Lennon to, to get a quote from him on what do you think about Elvis dying? And he finally said, you know, what I think about Elvis dying is the fact that when Elvis, you know, I think Elvis died when he went into the Army in, 19, you know, in 1958. After that, he was just the living dead because they basically controlled him with, uh, MK, I argue, with MKUltra operations thereafter and drugs. And uh, after him, of course, they did the same, uh, especially with acid, with LSD, but with other drugs too, um, in terms of well, you know, they they targeted Paul Robeson, you know, the great Paul Robeson. And that's um, something great. I didn't know about until I read your book. And talk about that, because that's very that's very important. What happens to him? Yeah, Paul Robeson could speak uh, an incredible amount of languages. He was one, you know, you know, arguably the greatest man in, of the 20th century. Um, he, you know, he could speak so many languages. He, he graduated from Columbia Law School. He was an incredible singer, a great actor, uh, a great activist, and um, and so he was targeted in a lot of different ways. But the biggest way that did him in was um, dosing a drink of his with LSD or or BZ, a super psychedelic. Um, Paul Robeson Jr. has talked about it, and he's alternated between saying he thinks it was LSD or BZ, but he's not sure. Um, and so this was when. And didn't he also have LSD too? Didn't they give LSD to a junior too? Right, they did. And, right, right. And so uh, Paul Robeson was at, um, you know, at I think it was, uh, you know, a hotel where there was uh, some American diplomats, or I forget if he was right at the American embassy at the time, or at a hotel right next to the embassy, and where there was a bunch of uh, Americans hanging out, having a party right next to his room that he didn't. Uh, know what's going to happen. They kept talking, trying to talk him into coming into it. They went to the party briefly. Someone gave him a drink. He's had a little drink, and all of a sudden he was tripping, and uh, he thought he was losing his mind. He didn't know what was going on, and so he called, uh, you know, his family and his his adult son, Paul Robeson Jr., came in to see what was going on, and uh, somebody dosed his his coffee, and he had a little sip and was tripping up a storm himself. Didn't know what to do, and. Uh, they did it to him multiple times to Paul Robeson Sr. and finally convinced uh, his wife to have him checked into a mental hospital where they gave him over 50 electroconvulsive shock treatments at super high doses and messed up his mind, both with the acid and the ECT, the electroconvulsive <laughs> shock treatment. 
And uh, so he became a recluse thereafter because he didn't want to be remembered that way with a, a mind messed up by this, you know, shock and the uh, the acid. But, you know, it's just it's really horrible. And the thing was, he, three weeks later, he was supposed to be in uh, Havana, Cuba, meeting with Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. And three weeks later was the time when we were uh, about to launch the uh, Bay of Pigs. You know, the United States government was about to launch the Bay of Pigs, the invasion of Cuba. So uh, the CIA clearly did not want uh, Paul Robeson going over there, you know, at that time and getting support and sympathy for, uh, you know, Castro and Che Guevara in Cuba. So, you know, but he, I, I argue, yeah, he was one of the greatest men of the 20th century, if not the greatest man of the 20th century. He's, and it's so sad to lose him. MKUltra clearly targeted him. And then they had a psychedelic hit list against uh, that they, ABC News came out with this, you know, with CIA documents saying, they had a psychedelic hit list against Che Guevara, Castro, along with Nasser of Egypt, and uh, they were going to target them with acid. And so this is what they were doing. But in 1965, uh, A.E. Hotchner, who was a longtime editor for Ernest Hemingway, said that um, in his book, Blown Away, that uh, Robert Lashbrook, the, the uh, deputy director of MKUltra for the CIA, went over to London, uh, brought over tons of money to give to different agencies with Human Ecology Fund money, and brought over agents to get LSD in as many musicians' hands as possible. And that same year, um, a dentist had uh, invited George Harrison and uh, John Lennon over for dinner, and it was George Harrison's dentist, and he proceeded to spike their coffee with, with LSD, and uh, George Harrison said, you know, what's LSD? He didn't even know what it was after, you know, he was dosed, you know, against his will. He didn't even know what he was drinking. And then afterwards he said, oh, you just you just had acid in your coffee. And John Lennon was furious. You put acid in our coffee? You, what, you tell me we were tripping now? So John Lennon, it was, what it was was mad as hell because he never tried it before. And George Harrison never right. even heard of it because cause it wasn't known well in, in England at that time. And uh, so that's how they had their first hit of acid. Uh, now, who would risk that except someone who was above the law? And that's what I argue this dentist was about. And he was likely connected to Robert Lashbrook. And uh, an FBI undercover agent was the first person to give Mick Jagger his uh, first hit of acid in 1967. And it's a guy named uh, and David And it's a funny thing, I hate to interrupt you, but it's a funny thing too, sure, uh, John. And listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315 and talking to John Podash, author of the book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA's Murderous Targeting Us, SDS, Panthers, Kendricks, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. The funny thing about all this is that, again, getting back to the portrayal of Leary, but also during that time I remember how a lot of the folks like the Beatles, Rolling Stones and so many other folks, it was the assumption that they were taking it on their own, that they're the ones that kind of discovered LSD. You know, it was a you know, uh, at the time. Right, right. You know, right, no yeah. influence. It's like, oh, yeah, and that's why, you know, one of the reasons uh, the Beatles wrote up Lucy in the Sky with Glasses, LSD. With diamonds, yeah, sure. And that's yeah, what they wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. these U.S. intelligence documents said, is, is you wanted people to act in, in a manner that they think is their own choosing, but is actually in the interest of, of us and following our agenda, you know. And that's what they that's what they did. That's what their plans were, and that's how they they ran these operations. And uh, the, you know, by and the, controlling, yeah, by, yeah, right. 
Going, and at the same great. time, I want you to talk about this because this is during the mm-hmm. height of the Vietnam War. And I want you to talk about because your book gets into it, but I read a book way, you know, back in my first year in college called The Politics of Heroin, and you mentioned it. Yeah, it's and a great talk book. talk about how the connection of where wars take place and drugs, poppy yeah. in particular. Well, that's what I, I sh- yeah, that's why I show that the uh, that this little country in Southeast Asia why it was so important because it was in the area of the Golden Triangle of Opium, and uh, and so that that area was you know there was op- you know opium wars fought you know against China in the 1800s, and it's really centered around that that area where it's the best area for growing poppies. And it's at the uh, one in a mo- of a mountain range. You know, it borders China. It's in Vietnam, Laos, and, and, uh, and Burma. And it's on one end of a mountain range where the other end of that same mountain range, which is the other best place to, for, to grow poppies that produce you know, opium and heroin, is Afghanistan. And so I show that it's no coincidence that the, those were the areas of the two longest wars in U.S. history because the U.S. wanted to control the best areas for growing opium and, you know, growing poppies for opium and heroin. And so uh, that's why um, they were so, you know, uh, upset about these anti-war activists and particularly these musicians who who could influence people. But they um, also targeted these musicians to popularize drugs that would hurt the anti-war movement. And that's what they did. And then when these musicians started sobering up and getting more into activism, they did these musicians in. So that, that, you know, played out with uh, Jimi Hendrix and uh, it was an MI6 agent who um, who, in, who kind of inserted himself into Jimi Hendrix's life, a guy named Mike Jeffrey, who admitted he was former MI6, and I argue all the evidence shows he was continued to be undercover MI6. And then 48 hours uh, after Jimi Hendrix fired him, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix died. And uh, in a drunken state later, this guy admitted to Jimi Hendrix's roadie, James Tappy Wright, that um, he had Hendrix killed. And who can do that? Who can get together, uh, you know, a murder team in 48 hours except someone, you know, that was connected to U.S. or British intelligence? You know, MI6 is a you know, British CIA. So, right. you know, that's that's the way these things work, and as sad as it is, and they also... And it's not only, in, yeah, and not only the murder of um, Hendrix, uh, Tupac, but you talk about Janis Joplin, Brian mm-hmm. Jones. I didn't realize that one with the Rolling Stones. Talk a little bit about that one. Yeah, he was the founder of the Rolling Stones and considered the best musician. Um, and they, you know, so after he was uh, kind of influenced to get involved in drugs, he started sobering up after they um, wouldn't give him a visa to, to go to on the American tour for, with the Rolling Stones in 1969. So he separated from the Rolling Stones. He called up Jimi Hendrix and called up John Lennon and said, let's form a supergroup. They tentatively agreed to form a supergroup with him. And then uh, a good friend of um, Brian Jones uh, witnessed, um, I could come, go into town to pick up a friend, came back, couldn't get in Brian's house, and this guy was named Nicholas Fitzgerald. He was a member of the Guinness Beer family. And so he's in the, he walks around the back of the house, and all of a sudden he sees three people drowning um, somebody in, the, in Brian Jones's pool. And uh, somebody pops out of the bushes and says, get out of here, Fitzgerald, or you'll be next. And uh, he didn't talk about it for years, and they finally published it in a memoir. And he, you know, that, that that person they were drowning was actually his friend Brian Jones. 
and he was scared to death to ever talk about it. But um, there was more witnesses than just him that saw that murder. And uh, I, I say it's because they were very fearful of that supergroup that uh, Brian jo- sober Brian Jones was going to be forming with Jimi Hendrix and John Lennon. That would have been an incredible anti-war supergroup. So, um, yeah, this is the way it's been happening for years. And sadly enough, they uh, they use these musicians to try to popularize these drugs. And then when they start sobering up, they do them in. And it's same played out for Kurt Cobain and Nirvana to popularize heroin. And then when, as he got sober... And uh, he cured a stomach ailment that was uh, triggering some of the use of the heroin. Cured it a year before he died. And uh, so, and with Tupac, he was, you know, he was popularizing weed, sadly enough. And then we started sobering up and settling down with Kadeda Jones, Quincy Jones's daughter, and they planned to move in together and have a baby together. Um, he, you know, witnesses like um, Russell Simmons says he saw Tupac at a party dancing all night, and he was the only one that wouldn't touch any weed or drink at all that in the whole party. And then, of course, they did him in. So. You know, and it's a funny thing, too, because currently, as we are speaking, the hottest movie in the country is uh, Straight Outta Compton about mm-hmm. N.W.A. And you mentioned, you know, you're talking about Tupac, and he appears, he's portrayed in this latest movie. But also talk about Death Row Records and this whole governmental connection, because people don't know that. And I haven't seen the movie yet, but I have a feeling this is not in the movie and talk about that connection. Also, you know, Suge Knight, yeah. who is mentioned in the movies. Talk about that, because that's very important to know yeah. also. Yeah, I look forward to seeing that movie, see how they portray it all. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, NWA was a breakout band and, and you know, had an excellent, that, that Straight Out Compton was an excellent you know, album, of course. And um, so, you, you know, Death Row Records was a U.S. intelligence front company. Uh, you know, a high-level police detective stumbled upon the fact that there was dozens of his fellow police officers in all levels of death row records. And when he asked his superiors, what are they doing there? His superior said, you can call them troubleshooters or covert agents. So that's clearly what it was. It was a it's, you, you know, U.S. intelligence front company whose purpose was trafficking drugs, trafficking guns, breaking up NWA, believe it or not. That's Suge Knight's first goal, and he was successful. He convinced uh, rapper DOC to get out of NWA. He, he lured Dr. Dre out of NWA and threatened other and people in NWA. And the thing about NWA. Dr. Dre, as you, say, as you say in the book about Dr. Mm-hmm. Dre, is that he wasn't someone that was using drugs at the time, weed. Not and at he all. He never in his songs put anything about right. chronic, but when he switched over to de- you know death row, all of a sudden he's producing a song called the chronic. Right, right. If you look at, at uh, one of his songs, Dre's songs, uh, he, he actually raps on in uh, Straight Out Compton. He talks about, you know, weed, weed causes brain damage, he says. You know, and, uh, and, you know, brain damage on the mic don't manage, or says, or something. I forget the name of the song, but he uh, his song on, on Straight Out Compton is, is completely anti-weed. And then when he goes with Death Row Records, his first album is Chronic, so they completely turned him around on that. And then they, uh, you know, he was Dre was forced to leave Death Row with nothing, even though he was the creative force that you know behind Death Row in the beginning. Um, you know, no one else had that creativity in the in the start of Death Row. And um, so, you know, it's really incredible what what Death Row did to N.W.A. and tried to do to Dre, but thank God Dre got away from there. 
and it's just too bad that they they worked so hard to lure Tupac into death row, and then when they after they did, they aided his his murder, and that was another of their goals was to aid Tupac's murder, and probably one of the largest of their goals, sadly enough. Um, you know, but, and I, I, and help help me with this one, uh, John. I think mm-hmm. Tupac said at one time, I think it was him that said this that. He was saying that rap and hip hop would be the CNN for young people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he did say things like that because I mean, at, you know, at the time with Public Enemy and other Paris and you know and other good rap groups that were had political messages, um, they were telling a lot of what the media wasn't saying, you know. Um, and Tupac was trying to do that on himself, you know, and saying. Uh, Who's the biggest gang of you know biggest gang in the city? The the cops and the you know courts and whatever he was in the, in the media. He thinks you know he just says all these other groups are acting like gangs more than than we are, and uh, yeah you know they they told about what was going on when the media wouldn't cover what's really going on, and so uh, but the music industry was so bought out and so controlled that they they pushed those political rap groups out of the picture. So it was hard for them to make money because they weren't they didn't get the exposure. You know, and so Time Incorporated bought so many of the rap labels, and um, and that's the way it got controlled. But still, you know, people remember what what was the good rap, and, to, and that's why they they long, and that's why I think that movie Straight Outta Compton is doing so well because N.W.A. was such such a great startup band. Um, and then you know, Tupac had some great stuff, of course, and that's why people still love Tupac and Biggie. Now, Biggie was wasn't political, but he you know he, he was creative, of course, and. Uh, and you know he was actually killed uh, sadly enough as more i think more collateral damage because of the fact that they wanted to make the uh divert people's attention from a political you know Tupac's box murder right. to a political murder make it look like an east coast versus west coast murder or you know a uh, you know puffy versus you know uh you know whatever biggie versus Tupac kind of murder and that that kind of crap that no one a lot of people don't believe thank god but you know a lot of people did believe for a while you know, and still do believe in, in many senses. And listeners, you can call in at 424-675-8315. I'm talking to John Podash, author of the book, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. Now, John, you know, as I was reading this book, and you do include them in here and a number of other folks, do you ever, do you ever worry, because you are throwing out a lot of information that mm-hmm. forces that you talk about in the book, CIA and all the other forces, don't want people to know. Yeah. And I keep thinking well, about, they, you know, Gary Webb. You talk about him in yeah. the book. Well, Gary Webb, you know, when he put his stuff out there, it was the front page of a daily newspaper that hit the wires, you know, the, the Associated Press Wire Services and hit the Internet and, you know, went viral. And granted, the Internet, you know, does promote some of my work, but, um, they, you know, print media really gets the word out there. And, and I'm virtually banned from print media. That's just the way it is. Um, one print media publication actually um, interviewed me in Baltimore, the Baltimore City Paper, and within a year, the guy that interviewed me was was let let go. So, um, you know, amazing. It's, yeah, it's it's just the way it works. You know, they they really censor information like mine. And so, as much as I'd like to get the word out there, and I can I appreciate you, Greg, for talking to me about it and getting the word out there. It's just very hard to do that, and so. They they monitor you know the, po- you know, the popularity of, of books like mine and um, you know and so it, it, by censoring me so much they, they think I'm not much of a threat I assume I hope at least you know we'll see. Well you know but the uh, you know the 
irony of it all is, again, I say in your book and the references you have, uh, the majority of the information I see in your book is from government documents. You can go to yeah. the church committee back in the 70s and you will see everything that you're talking about during this, you know, the, that happened from the 40s on to the mid-70s. Yeah, there, there's nothing. a number of things from those government documents. I agree, but who who has read those government documents? You know, very few people have read those that Senate Church, that Senate Church Committee report, which is a book that not you know, not many people have seen, and so not many people write about. So I write about it. A few other people write about it, but taking it to the level that I take it with musicians, that's not that. I mean, it talks about. There's a document in the Senate Church Committee report that talks about the targeting of. Of musician of political musicians in general, but right. doesn't mention any names. It just mentions tactics. So I I go over the tactics and show how they were used against these different musicians, and the other evidence that show how they were used against these different musicians. Because yeah. the tactics are also, you know, as you mentioned a little earlier, but talk a little more about mm-hmm. this because we didn't get into the Panthers and SDS. Yeah, well, um, Students for Democratic Society. It started in 1960, and they started as uh, an anti-war group, but they were most probably involved in the civil rights movement. Um, they had uh, traveled to help Martin Luther King out in the South. Uh, they traveled from California, from New York, but mostly from New York, but also Chicago, in groups called like the Congress of Racial Equality and uh, different and student nonviolent coordinating committee. They joined them. That was Martin Luther King's youth group. Course, and, uh, and they were involved mostly in that work in the first few years of the early 1960s. And then uh, they started getting heavily involved uh, starting in about 65 in the anti-war movement, you know, anti-Vietnam War movement. And so what what I found was the fact that undercover agents uh, got the, the leaders of SDS. Um, they tried to influence them to start getting involved in psychedelics. And when they refused, uh, there was a, a good example I show in uh, the head of Columbia University, SDS, Students for Democratic Society, a guy named Mark Rudd. Him and his chapter refused to do LSD, saying they thought it was anti-revolutionary. And so undercover agent George Demerley had founded a group called the Crazies, which was an offshoot group of Abby Hoffman's uh, Yippies, United International Party, Youth right. International Party, I'm sorry. Um, and... Um, and George Demerley and the Crazies, I show evidence, um, went to a party of Columbia SDSs and dosed the punch with tons of LSD and got them all tripping and convinced them that it was fun and you shouldn't be anti-LSD, and so they weren't thereafter. And thereafter, Mark Rudd began to act incredibly erratic and uh, just, you know, crazy. He just he lost all credibility after that. He was a great activist organizer before that, and a leading activist organizer, because that was the first major campus takeover against the war, was Columbia University, and it led loads of campuses to be taken over all over the country against the war. And after that, though, Mark Rudd said he bragged about not reading a book for a year. He bragged about, um, the, you know, he lauded the Manson family and the, you know, their murders of, of people. And just did other crazy stuff like that, so he, was, he lost all respect and, and really hurt the movement, you know. And I know there's some folks out there, uh, John, are probably saying, well, you know, it seems like the newest thing that you know that he's mentioning is Kurt Cobain, and that's mm-hmm. almost 20 years ago, and Tupac, mm-hmm. and you know, it can't be happening now. They're not going to any movements now. now. Yeah, and oh, it's still happening now, especially about Occupy. 
Talk, yeah, talk about well, I, real right quick, now. I'll also say, because we, we have talked about um, SDS and the Panthers, and the Panthers, of course, were the best community organizers uh, I think this country's ever seen, and they were they were model community organizers for the Young Lords. Um, you know, uh, the founder of the Young Lords, uh, Jose, I think his name is um, Jose Chacha uh, uh, Rodriguez. I'm sorry, I forget, I'm yeah. not sure I'm getting his last name right. Jimenez or something. Uh, but anyway, the founder of the um, of Young Lords actually followed around uh, Bobby Seale, who was the founder of the Black Panthers, for a month to learn what he did, and um, and to, to model you know his, his work in in organizing the you know Latino Young Lords, and um, so they were the great community organizers doing great work. They were uh, you know and they were aligning themselves with Students for Democratic Society and the Young Lords. And um, what happened to them is that the undercover agents were, you know, inserted themselves into their lives and got them using cocaine, got Huey Newton using cocaine and, and hurt his life with that, um, got Fanny Shakur when she was beleaguered, starting to use crack cocaine, and she developed an addiction for years until 1991 where she got clean and sober and started helping her son Tupac again after that when he was breaking out into rap. And... Um, Really sidetracked a number of Black Panthers with these drugs, and uh, and you know I just show all the evidence of that. It's really sad that that happened. Though uh, Huey Newton, I argue, was starting to get very activist and and doing some good organizing again when he was assassinated in uh, 1989. So and I show all the evidence for that. But um, you know that's how they attacked the Panthers. Now Kurt Cobain. He um, was just a, you know, everybody knew that Nirvana was this rising group in Seattle, this incredible group, even before they, they uh, landed on a major label. And, um, you know, they had already been taken on tour by Sonic Youth when they landed, um, you know, a major label, Geffen Records, and, and Nirvana was taken throughout Europe with them. And so when Nirvana started hitting it big, um, I argue that that U.S. intelligence did psychological profiling, and they profiled different uh, rising musicians, and particularly Cobain, and they found that Cobain could be susceptible to heroin use because he had already dabbled in it because he had this chronic stomach right. ailment. Uh, and this intestinal ailment was so bad, it was le- leaving him in, in terrible pain and throwing up and nauseous and not being able to eat. And um, so they inserted uh, Courtney Love into his life, I argue, and I show all the evidence of that, uh, to get him using heroin regularly, and uh, but a year and, and before he died. And I don't want you to died, say a lot about Cor- I don't want you to say a lot about Courtney because I want people to get the book because that the Courtney well, Love part is, in itself is a book in itself. Yeah, it's the really, things you say about her, what she, story. you know, oh, it's it's, it's something that I want the listeners out there to get this book and read that part. But go ahead, go it's ahead. It's an unbelievable story, and it's funny that this new movie just came out, this mainstream movie called American Ultra. Because that covers the subproject of, of MK Ultra that is similar to what I show, you know, what I argue that Courtney Love likely went through. But um, you know, it may, tries to make it a little more of a comedy slash adventure right. suspense. But it's you know whatever. It's a mainstream version of that. But um, so you know, so Cobain actually solved his stomach problem a year before he died, and he said it was the happiest he's ever been when he once he found, found a cure to his stomach problem. And when a month before he died, they did a blood test on him, and he had no illegal substances in his system. So he was not using heroin a month before he died, um, you know, despite media reports. 
And so um, the reason the blood test was done the month before he died is because the only thing in the system were Rohypnol, Rufis, you know, the, the date rape drug. And uh, it, all the evidence points to Courtney Love. It was her prescription of, of Rohypnol, Rufis, that she got in England where they're illegal. And uh, all the evidence is that she put it in his drink to try to kill him then, and he went into a coma and uh, went to the hospital and was, you know, came out and didn't remember what happened. But uh, but then she had a team of heroin addicts around in his house that he kept trying to fire and get rid of, and she kept them there and kept paying them and paying their you know, for their heroin habit, and you know had them do him him in, sadly enough. But um, you know we have guys passed passed multiple polygraph tests saying yes, she offered me fifty thousand dollars to blow my blow Cobain's head off. But I, I didn't accept because I was on tour. But I know who did. And then he, you know, after he announced, started to announce who did it, he uh, was killed himself. So he ended up dead. You know. So yeah, it's just unbelievable. Just a story, story. Yeah. you know, just like yeah. the other ones in the book. And like I said, you know, and talk about because I know you have to leave at uh, in a couple of minutes. But talk real quickly yeah. about occupying. Also, you don't have it in the book, but I'm curious to know if you are seeing the same pattern with. Uh, I am myself, but the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. movement and some other current movements. Yeah, I, I don't know about the. You know, I came out with this book before the Black Lives Matter movement started, um, and I, I, you know, have great respect for the people I've met in the Black Lives Matter movement, including my nephews involved. Um, but um, with the Occupy movement, what happened was um, some videographers in Minneapolis caught police bribing some Occupy activists to leave their, uh, where they were set up in Minneapolis and come to a warehouse. And they, they caught them on film, and then they interviewed the guys that, that were taking, you know, went there. And they said that, yeah, we, you know, we were kind of bribed to come to this warehouse. They gave us all kinds of different drugs, uh, but mainly, you know, weed and K2 and spice, which, you know, these are, K2 and spice are called synthetic marijuana. Really, it's just all kinds of crazy chemicals that have led people to become um, paranoid and psychotic. Um, you know, I've seen them in my uh, my drug counseling work. You know, in inpatient facilities, just not come down from their paranoia for weeks. But um, so this is what they were doing to these Occupy activists in Minneapolis, and they were caught doing this. And it was found that this program they had in Minneapolis was a national program. It was a, you know it was a, in, active in cities all over the country. And they, all the press that, that, you know, they cause a lot of press to cover this, and they end up closing it down in Minneapolis. And it's just a wonder of how many people didn't catch it in the other cities that it was probably being done in, too. Because they were interrogating these activists once they were uh, stoned. And, uh, they were, you know, they actually had used to use marijuana in MKUltra, and they, they found that they thought that marijuana, like high high dose marijuana weed, really strong weed, is some of their best interrogation, you know, drug that they had, even you know, better than other drugs that they were using. So um It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And they it's really, also, it's really uh, amazing. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean they also had some documents showing that they knew of murder plans against Occupy activist coordinators. And they didn't tell those uh, you know, activist coordinators, and that's illegal. When you know of a murder plan, when you're part of a law enforcement, you're supposed to tell the person that's that's going to could possibly be murdered. But they, it's it's obvious that they were probably part of the plan. That's why they didn't tell the activists because they were already meeting with the banks and the and stock market leaders to uh, target these you know occupiers. So yeah. And what would stuff. you tell? Um, I know we're getting ready to conclude this, but what would you tell activists, people who want to join these movements? 
what would you tell well, them, given this history that you know? What would you tell someone? Well, the first thing is that please, you know, enjoy the, the sex and the rock and roll without the drugs, you know, and enjoy <laughs> the sex and the rap without the drugs. Um, you keep the, your clear mind and just, you know, keep up the creativity to have fun in other ways besides using drugs. And But be independent-minded and be an independent thinker and, you know, watch out for groupthink because uh, groups can be manipulated. Uh, be an independent thinker and, and, you know, be careful about who you befriend because, you, you know, you just have to watch out for what their motives are and just be, you know, be certain that you are doing the right thing and doing smart things when you, you know, get involved in different activist projects. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I still think Black Lives Matter is doing good things and good stuff, and, I you know, I hope they don't get diverted from their good work. Yeah, that's what I hope won't happen either. They don't get diverted, yeah. but the history, unfortunately, what you've shown is that it can, it will happen. It can potentially happen. Well, they'll be targeted, but hopefully they're, they're going to keep right. up, you know, the very important work they're doing and and not get diverted by uh, you know possible agents that could try to infiltrate them. Yeah, possibly. You know, I think they already, you know, they're everywhere these agents. But John, right, I just want to thank you. And what are you, you know? For the person out there that's still wavering, mm-hmm. how can you convince them to buy your book? What would you tell just someone? Look, yeah, just like, just check it out for you know. You, if you go to Amazon um, and just you can look at different parts of the book and you can read different sections, excerpts they have for free on Amazon, and then decide you know, and then you can order it to Barnes and Noble and see and get it physically there and start looking at it and decide whether you want to buy it or not because they say they can uh, order it to Barnes and Noble in two or three days. You know, it comes in two or three days after you order if, if it's not already on the bookshelf. Um, Books a Million is supposed to be carrying it too, but I hear it takes a little longer for them to get it in the store if they don't have it in the store already. So that's some of the ways you can preview it, you know. And also, you know, John, I just want to say you're very courageous to write this and the other book. Thanks a lot, Greg. You know, Thanks, I, really I really appreciate, appreciate having you on here. You know, sure. when I read the first book, I said I got to I got to talk to him at some point. I'm just happy to have you on here. And if anyone wants to contact you, uh, tell them yeah, your they, website or go ahead. Yeah, sure. It's John uh, J O H N P O T A S H John Potash dot com. You can go there and just message me there, and I'll respond as quickly as possible. And you can buy the book directly from me if you want. If you want me to, you know, autograph or anything like that. But um, you can also buy uh, the first book there and my DVD there too. Well, John, I just want to so thank, thank you for coming on today, and I hope so much to meet you sometime. Me and you, yeah, you're just great, really Greg. great, and just just stay stay strong. Take care, John. Thanks so much, Greg. Take care of yourself too. Bye bye. All right. And again, that was John Podas, the author of the book "Drugs and Weapons Against Drugs as Weapons Against Us: The CIA's Murderous Targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendrix, Lennon, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists." And it is on Trend Day Books, and it's, you know, you just have to go to Amazon and just look it up. You'll find it. It's out there, and it's uh, worth the read. It's worth the read. Even if you're skeptical about some of the things John has said, just to read it, I think it will change your mind. It's an excellent book, and I'm just happy to have him on the program. It's, and that's what we try to do, just educate you, just so you can learn things on this program that you don't. You won't find in your, you know, on CNN. You won't see John on CNN or definitely Fox or MSNBC. You know, you may see him on Democracy Now. But it's, you know, we try to bring that information out to you, and I hope you appreciate it and enjoy the information. 
you know, just learn. If you don't agree with what John says or what I say or any topics I have on here, any guests, you know, at least think. That's all that's all I just ask you to do, just think and go to the root of issues. That's why this is the root and root show. We're gonna to get to some a little bit more roots music in a sense as far as roots as far as hip hop because we're gonna play another Tupac song, the one I originally was gonna play until John came on. And I'm gonna do I get around. So let's hear Tupac and I get around on the root and root show. Oh uh, yeah. I get around. Still clown with the underground when we come around. Stronger than ever. Back to get wrecked. All respect to those who break their neck to keep their hopes in check. Cause no they sweat a brother majorly. And I don't know why your girl keeps plaging me. To tell me that she needs me. Cry when she leaves me. And every time she sees me, she squeeze me. Lady, take it easy. Hate to sound sleazy, but tease me. I don't want it if it's that easy. Hey, yo, bust it. Baby, got a problem saying bye-bye. Just another habit of a fly guy. Your ass why don't matter. My pockets got fatter. Now everybody's looking for the ladder. And ain't no need in being greedy. If you want to see me, try to keep a number, baby, when you need me. And I'll be there in a jiffy. Don't be picky, just be happy with this quickie. But when you learn, you can't time it down, baby, dog. Check it out. I get around. What you mean you don't know? I get around. The underground just don't stop for hoes. I get around. Still down with the underground clouds. I get around. Let them hoes know. Now you can tell from my everyday fits. I ain't rich, so cease and desist with them tricks. I'm just another black man caught up in the mix. Trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents. Just cause I'm a freak don't mean that we can hit the sheets. Baby, I can see that you don't recognize me. I'm Shock G, the one who put the satin on your panties. Never knew a hooker that could share me. I get What's up, love? How you doing? Right. Well, I've been hanging, singing, trying to do my thing. Oh, you heard that I was banging. Your homegirl you went to school with. That's cool, but did she tell you about her sister? And your cousin thought I wasn't uh. See, weekends was made for Michelob But it's a Monday, my day So just let me hit it, yo And don't mistake my statement for a clown We can keep it on the down low Long as you know that I get around
as I get around and still can't believe this this song's over twenty years old. And before the you know and before that we had John Podash on here talking about drugs as weapons against us, a great book. You should check it out, pick it up and and I'm gonna do right now because I got in a discussion early in the week about you know, someone was talking to me about in the new movie NWA, the Straight Out of Compton, and I don't agree with all the lyrics of their songs and what they did. Some things I don't, some things I do. But the thing is that the person I was talking to was like acting like that gangster rap started with them and that type of rap and everything. But it goes back. I mean, it goes back to the twenties. There are a number of groups, you know. Blues singers in particular that were talking about violence against women. I mean, it's just something that goes way back. And I'm going to play right now. This is not a violent song, but this is from the 20s. And this is Jimmy Davis, and he's he's rapping on this thing. This is a, he's a hum-dum dinger. Just listen to what he's talking about on the Root and Root Show. Talk about your girls, but you ought to see mine. She ain't so good looking, but she dress so fine. She's long, she's tall, she's a handsome queen. She's got ways like a mowing machine. She's a humdum dinger from Dingersville. Do watch her strut her stuff. I took her to church in my hometown. Preacher got hot and throwed his Bible down. Says I've been a preaching long, long time. Deacon, get yours, boys, I got mine. She's a humdum danger from Dangersville. Do watch her strut her Brother Deacon by the old fireplace Run that sister one awful race Overtook her way uptown She got warm and turned his damper down She's a humdum danger from Dingersville Do watch her strut her stuff Don't you bother me I'll whip you down with a single tree She's a humdum danger from Dangersville Do watch her strut her stuff Now church is over, singing's done Not much preaching but lots of fun She's a humdum danger from Dangersville Do watch her strut her stuff Thank you. 
Look out, brother. Don't try to get slack. I love to get something from you, and I won't give it back. Folks, that was a jiving man from the West. Everybody called him jiving depressed. He jived his maw. He jived his paw. He even down jived his maw and law. He jived every soul. He jived the mule name maw. He was so game, he jived the Cadillac's walls. Had a habit of jiving, and that ain't all with his laws. Laws, 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 laws. Oh, jiving now. Oh, you salty dog. Hang loud, 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 loud. He jived so much, he was a mystery. He even jived the gang that wrote policy. He jived the whole creation, seemed like a star with his lord, 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 lord. He even jived the gal that called pretty bright eyes. He bunkoed her so, you know the poor kid cried. He said, I'm a jiver from my birth. He jived so much he died and left this earth with his lord, 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 lord. Hey! Oh, you pretty thing. What do you want me to buy you? Shoes? I'm gonna buy you some shoes, stockings, and garters too. And lord, 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 lord. Down below, he looked around once or twice. He even jived the devil and the devil's wife. He jived the little imps, big ones and all, with his lord, 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 lord. He jived so strong, raised so much sand. He said, Lord, I'm just a jiving man. He jived like lightning. He just wouldn't quit. He said, everybody, get set and get your mind on it with that lord, 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 lord. Oh, you pretty thing. Just as beautiful. Oh, run and tell me and crush me. But don't bruise me, baby. Oh, no, no, no. After Jippy then jived, he backed him up against the wall. The imp said, Lord, he's going to jive us all. Don't you worry. Don't you fret. Well, I'm the jiving king, and I ain't started yet with my Lord, 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 Lord. Oh, study now. Oh, now, 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 now. Pilo, Man, what are you finna go, Every time I get ready, when you always got something to say. I'm just tired of that. I'm going somewhere. I'll be right back. Why all the time we fussing, baby? I'm going home with my wife 
Muddy Waters. Muddy, come on. I want to thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This is a brand new one we made to call I Got My Brand On You.
Uh, this is one we made of a few years ago. You call a hoochie coochie man. I have to play that one next time, hoochie coochie man. But, <laughs> but that was Muddy Waters, and I got my brand on you. Before that, and that was from 1960. Before that, we did uh, the brand new one from P Love. Stop running those streets. I know some of you tonight are doing that. Stop running those streets. And before that, we did two songs from the 20s. Frank Half Pint Jackson, which is spelled J A X O N, in Jive Man Blues, and and he was called Half Pint because he wasn't six seven; he was little. And he also Frank Frank Half Pint Jackson was also was a cross dresser. He did a lot of you know his act was a, as a female impersonator from time to time, but that was him, and that was bold for the twenties and thirties. And we started to set off with uh, Jimmy Davis. She's a humdum dinger on the Root and Root Show. And we got, oh, we got 35 minutes to go. And I'm going to do, yes, I'm going to do some slow jams now. Yes, I will do that. I know you want, yes. I know you, Elaine, out there want to hear it. You, Sylvia, David, all these folks. Um, yeah, I know you want to hear it. You want to hear some too, Maria. So we're going to do slow jams right now. And I'm going to start it off with the new one. This is from the uh, Mosaic album by Terry Lynn Carrington. She has, she's a drummer. She has a lot of great vocalists on this CD. You know, and one of them that she has on there is the one and only Valerie Simpson of Astrid and Simpson. And this is a remake of her song she did with her late husband, Nicholas uh, Ashford. And this is a Somebody Told a Lie. So let's hear that on the Root and Root Show. Yeah, women have always been very much a part of my life, and I don't mean just from a sexual point of view, but in a very beautiful, wonderful uh, way, actually. I got involved with uh, Carl Jung, Carl G. Jung, and he coined a phrase called um, the anima animus. And the anima is the female counterpart of the male cell. The animus is the male counterpart of the female cell. So... From that point on, I always felt that men uh, should learn more about that, the female part of themselves, the soft side of themselves.
pour habiter les mémoires Exhumer les connaissances Que la spirale du temps efface La reine de sa partie en moi Ma quête
but we just enjoy all your comments and all your suggestions and just thank you so much for it. But we're going to get out of here right now. And I just want to say this is Greg Rashid again with the Root and Root Show, going love and going peace, and we will see you next time. Have a great day and hug someone if you can. Take care. Thank you.